Open your Bibles or tap there on your phone to Job chapter 1. We're looking at the first two chapters of Job this morning and uh, beginning a six-week series, and we sort of fly very quickly over all 42 chapters of Job in six weeks. And uh, we'll be going more in-depth in our life groups, so if you are in a life group, expect to meet this week. And if you don't have a life group, then contact the office or talk to Allison. We'll get you connected with a life group, and uh, you'll see that you have notes there. Um, In the inside of your notes, if you open up the front page of that Job handout, there's five boxes. I'm just telling you right now, I'm going to give you those five answers during the sermon. Uh, so the rest you've got to do on your own, but those five answers you're going to get. All right, so that you can fill those in before you even leave today. Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz. Now, I'm going to have to go faster than six words at a time, but uh, I'll just stop there. <laughs> The book of Job doesn't, doesn't open with any sort of time reference, okay? And, and there's no time references found in the book of Job. And uh, as you can imagine, a lot of people have spent some time and effort to try to find out when Job was written, you know, who wrote it, where did the story come from, is he historical, is it a parable, what is it? Well, the book of Job is probably the first book of the Bible ever written. The Hebrew that is in Job is the most ancient Hebrew um, that is in the Bible, uh, to the point that there are even Hebrew words there that aren't used anywhere else. And so translation is a little tricky with with a few of the words because they're not used in any other book. It's the only place we have them. When I say they're not in any other book, I mean they're literally not in any other book in the world. And so this is ancient, ancient Hebrew. Um, and uh, But Scripture refers to Job as a historical figure. Ezekiel 14.14 14 says, uh, Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land, I would not deliver it, the Lord says. And, so, uh, and then there's other places where Job is referred to in James 5.11, for instance. And so Job is considered a historical figure. And so just to sort of quickly bring you up to speed on the background, the, a likely case for the story of Job uh, is... That and for the writing of the book is that Job was an early worshiper of Yahweh. And so you think of Melchizedek, you think of Moses' father Jethro. There, there were people outside of the nation of Israel who worshipped the Lord, not only Israel. God revealed himself to other peoples. And so Job was probably a non-Jewish, a non-Israel um, um, worshiper of God. Uh, probably even pre-Israel. The, the story of Job probably comes from the time of, uh, of before Abraham even, or around the time of Noah. And it was probably an oral story that was told over and over and over again. And, and that's why it's written in the form that it's written. It's not written explicitly as a history. It's written largely as a poem. Uh, there's, there's some prose. There's poetry. There's, there's riddles. There's lamentations. There's curses. It's, but it's largely written as a poem. Uh, which lends itself to oral tradition. And so I, most or many scholars think that this is the first book that Moses actually wrote, even before he wrote Genesis, even before he wrote down the oral tradition or the oral story of creation that he would have had from Adam and Seth and, and Noah, Moses wrote the book of Job uh, from that same oral background. And it's important as a piece of ancient scripture, and the reason I bring up its history and, and the ancientness of it is that we will see as we read it how important it would be 
pre-Moses, pre-Abraham, maybe even pre-Noah, that people who were worshiping Elohim or Yehovah at that time would have questions about the God that they know of from great-grandfather Abraham and Seth and Cain even, and the questions that they would have about that God and about their life with that God. And so this is before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the law, before any of that, God has revealed himself to his worshipers and to his people through this ancient prophet who tells us the story of this man, Job. And he answers a lot of questions that you can imagine any worshiper of God in that time period would have before they had the scripture and before they had the law. And this ancient book answers what almost certainly would be our most ancient question if there is a God, then why is there suffering? Why me? Why now? Why this? What is going on, God? What, what is happening in heaven? And what is, how does that relate to me and what's going on? And so the fundamental question that Job answers is, why? Now, the answers are here. In 42 chapters of dialogue and argument and poetry and riddle and parable and lamentation and defense, and as you can imagine, as all things are with God, there are no pat answers to that question, why? Especially when it comes to suffering. God is not going to be constrained by simplistic answers that seek to maintain understanding and control over him, as we will see. The book of Job can be understood, but it takes time and patience. John Calvin gave 159 sermons on the book of Job. We're doing six. And his observation, but his observation to someone who is seeking to know how to read Job accurately, because if you've ever opened up Job and read it and, and waded into those you know, 30-some chapters of discourse in the middle of the book, the question is, how do we read Job accurately? What is it actually saying? And Calvin says it's good for us to keep in mind that in this book, Job makes a good case poorly and his friends make a poor case very well. Okay, so as you're reading, understand that Job is mostly right. Not completely right, but he's mostly right, but he makes his argument very poorly. Job's friends are mostly wrong. They're a little bit right, but they're mostly wrong, but they make their case very well. And so Job says a lot of correct things about God, but his emotions understandably get the best of him, and he can't reconcile what he knows to be true about God and what is happening in his life. And his friends say some correct things about God, but not everything they say is true. But they say it in a very convincing fashion. It's just not entirely correct. They try to simplify God. They try to put him in a box that they can comprehend and understand. And in the end, mostly right isn't actually right. And so if you're patient as you work through Job with us for these six weeks, there's actually a lesson that Job can teach you. It's a very important lesson. Job can teach you something better than being able to tell right from wrong. Just about anybody can tell right from wrong. What Job, if we're careful, will teach us is that it can teach us how to tell right from almost right. And that's a far more important skill in discernment. That takes real judgment. But it's not all about theology either. It's not only about God. A major part of this book is not just about how we think about suffering, but also how we act in and towards suffering. So it's certainly about thinking rightly about God, but then it's also about acting rightly before God and before others. And so the lessons come from both Job and his friends. And so as we read this book, we're going to hear echoes of the things that we have said to people suffering hardship. 
And as we remember those things that we have said in the past to people suffering, we are going to want to cover our mouths because we're going to realize that we too have mischaracterized God, that we too have sometimes said too little and sometimes said too much. But if we wait and if we persevere, we're going to be equipped to endure suffering on our own, and we are going to be equipped to offer real comfort to those other people who are suffering around us. That's what we hope to get out of Job. Now, it's tempting in the book of Job, all of that by introduction. It's tempting now in the book of Job, uh, and for all the Bible really, but especially in Job, to want to speculate on questions that we don't have answers to and are not given. Or to speculate on why things are a certain way and why they're not some way different. But we're not going to do that. We don't have time to, but also we don't want to establish. What we want to do is establish building blocks in order to construct a Christian theology of suffering. What is true about what scripture teaches. And the way I want to approach the first two chapters is consider the major players who are speaking and acting and considering each in turn will uncover the building blocks towards constructing this theology of Christian suffering. I, I wrestled for a long time about how to structure Job 1 and 2 to try to pull everything out of it in a way that is coherent. And I think by looking at the three main players of the story, we can do that. There's basically three central figures in the opening two chapters. We have God, we have Satan, and we have Job. And as we'll soon see, it's best if we start with God, because everything starts with God, and it's God who initiates anything. And so as we go through Job 1 and 2, we're going to look at God, Satan, and Job, and see whether we can pull out these building blocks that allow us to lay a foundation for a theology of Christian suffering. The main text is going to be Job 1, 6 to 12. So I'll start and just read that, and then I'll pull out individual texts from there and other parts of the first two chapters. Let's read God's word together, uh, or I'll read and you listen. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then after that, we get the description in the next several verses of the destruction that comes on Job's household. He loses his flocks, loses his family, loses his property, loses almost everything. Now, this is a, a tantalizing section of Scripture, which, as I said, will tempt us to speculate on all kinds of things that we do not need to, so we will not. And what we will do is focus on what we're told. You might have all kinds of questions like, where is this taking place? I don't know. Why is Satan talking to God? I don't know. Um, what does Satan do when he's out in the world? I don't know. doesn't tell us. There's lots of things that you can speculate on here. We're not going to do that. But let's first of all see here in verse 6, it says, The sons of God came. So who are the sons of God? We do sort of have to figure that out, and we've encountered them before in Scripture. In Genesis 6, 1-4, before the time of the flood, you remember that the sons of God married the daughters of men, and they took wives for themselves. And, and 
Now, these sons of God are probably not those specific sons of God because we find out in Jude that they're actually in prison because of what they left their place. But these sons of God, more generally, other sons of God are angels. That's what we would call them. And so angels have come into the presence of God. It says to present themselves before the Lord. And and in that phrase right there, we have the beginning of our first building block of understanding of Christian suffering. Just a hint of it. We're going to see more of it in the next sentence. But they come to present themselves before the Lord. And the the hint of that first building block is that it is God who's in complete control. In this scene, we're given a glimpse of the angels who are summoned into God's presence. And they present themselves for God. It's God who's in control of this situation. And it says, as we continue, Satan also came among them. And your translation may say the Satan because Satan is not really his name. It is Ha-Satan, which we've just made the name Satan. But Ha-Satan means literally the adversary in Hebrew. And so we, we see here that Satan is summoned and he arrives among all the other angels. And so that first building block that we see here in this very simple sentence is that God is in control. The enemy is not presiding over these proceedings. God is presiding over this scene. And there's a heretical idea that floats around in certain circles out there that God and the devil are somehow at war with each other and there's an equal battle between light and darkness. And sometimes God is winning and sometimes Satan is winning. Sometimes the forces of light are victorious and sometimes the forces of darkness are victorious. And we're waiting till Armageddon to see whether light or darkness is going to win out. And it's this idea of dualism, that there's some balanced battle going on. But that is not at all what is happening in this world or in the cosmos. God is in complete control. God is absolutely sovereign. He's in control at all times. And as Christians, we may find it easy to say that. And and you're sitting there thinking, Paul, of course, we say God's sovereign and God's in control. I know that. And we find it as Christians easy to say. But when it comes to suffering in our life, it's tempting tempting to start to talk a little bit like a dualist when something good happens we praise god for his blessing but when tragedy strikes we look for reasons to explain why god wasn't a part of that why god didn't have anything to do with that tsunami or that car wreck god was there for the blessing but he was somehow absent in the tragedy and we start to talk like dualists but we have to understand the first building block is that god is sovereign god is in control If we're going to understand suffering, we have to understand that God is sovereign and in control all the time. And there are implications to that building block. There are things that follow after that we have to wrestle with as Christians and that we will immediately begin to see. A little further down in verse 12, when Satan proposes a test for Job, we see that it is God that gives Satan permission to touch Job's family and possessions, but not Job himself. And so we see this control in the sense that God has Satan on a leash and he only lets out enough leash, as we will see, for Satan to hang himself, for Satan to see his own test fail, in fact. There is no dualism. There is no equality of powers. God is absolutely in control of Satan. And we also notice here that it's God who speaks first. It's always God who initiates. Satan never speaks until spoken to, and he always answers the questions that God asks him. God asks him where he has been and what he's been doing, And we'll get to that in a moment. 
But we see that God also asked Satan about Job, which sets up a second building block of our knowledge of suffering. Notice what it says in the text. God speaking, have you considered my servant Job? Now we need to wrestle with this because it's God who points out Job to Satan. Among all the people of the earth, God selects Job. It's not as if God doesn't know what's coming next. He wants Satan to consider Job. He wants Satan to bend his attention onto Job. Now you can imagine if Job knew this was going on, he'd be like, come on, God. With friends like you, right? Of all the people in the world, had to mention me while you're talking to Satan. Right? It's God that wants to put Job on display. And this is where the theological waters start to get deep, right? From this and from other passages, we discover that there is in a very real sense that we we can't just hand wave away or make excuses for. The second building block is that it is God who initiates suffering. God God knows exactly where Satan's going to go with this. And it's God who chooses Job. It's God who initiates the suffering that's about to come into Job's life. Because God is in control. God does not shirk his responsibility for suffering anywhere in Scripture. In Ephesians, we just did Ephesians, but in Ephesians 1.11, it says that God works all things to the counsel of his will and his purpose. And all things means all things. It means things like the falling of sparrows in Matthew 10.29. Not one falls apart from the Father. Or the death of his people in Psalm 44.11. It says, you have made us sheep for slaughter and scattered us. He takes responsibility for the outcome of sickness in Exodus 4.11. Who makes man mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Or disasters in Amos 3.6. He says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord does it? And, and many other places in Scripture. Understand, as you deal with this Christian Theology or understanding of suffering, it is God that initiates suffering. He does not shirk his responsibility of it. When there is a car crash, God is there. Just like he's there in the birth of a new baby and in blessing. And so, yes, we can see that Satan has a hand in Job's suffering. Of course he does. But it's God who's in control and it's God that selects Job for the suffering that's to come. And God knows he's ultimately responsible for suffering and he doesn't deny it. And when we get uneasy in confronting this truth, I think it arises out of our own misunderstanding of suffering, God and his purpose in it. Our uneasiness arises from a lack of understanding God's theodicy, which is a fancy word for God being vindicated or remaining good even in the presence of evil that he's sovereign over. That's hard for us to get our heads around. That God can be sovereign and completely in control, that he can initiate suffering, but that in the events of suffering, God maintains his goodness and is vindicated in that suffering. Thomas Watson puts it like this, and I'll just give you this quote to chew on. He says, God always has a hand in the action where sin occurs, but he never has a hand in the sin of the action that occurs. Okay? And you have to hang on to this. You have to hang on to the sovereignty of God and his control in suffering. Because if you don't, as we'll see at the end, it leads to despair. Job does not get his comfort from blaming Satan or looking at any secondary causes. When we get down to Job, you are going to see that Job will find his hope and comfort and refuge by resting in the ultimate cause of his suffering that he acknowledges, God. 
Even though he is the source of his suffering, he is the source of his comfort. So we have two building blocks to start with. God is in absolute control. Satan's power extends only to the end of God's leash. God initiates our suffering according to his purposes, which will ultimately lead to our comfort. Two building blocks from looking at God so far in this chapter. Now we're going to look at Satan. We have this other major participant here, obviously the adversary, Satan, the devil. And we see already that he comes into God's presence when summoned to present himself. He speaks when spoken to and he answers God's questions. And God asks Satan in verse 7, from where have you come? And Satan answers and in his answer he initiates another building block in our understanding of suffering. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And so Satan is active in the world, and insofar as God gives him permission. And there's a lot of questions here in the scriptures aren't going to answer. Why is Satan free on the earth? What purpose does he think he has? What are his motives? And we don't get clear answers to those things. We simply see that Satan is active in the world. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now Satan can't devour until he has permission. But Satan is in the world and he seems intent on undermining God's glory. When asked if he had considered Job, who God affirms is upright and blameless, right? So God is getting glory from Job. He says, look at Job, this man who's upright and blameless, who's righteous. Satan wants to undermine that. And so Satan speaks and he says, does Job fear God for no reason? In the Garden of Eden, Satan came to Eve and asked, did God really say? And now Satan is going to God and says, does Job Job really love you? You've blessed him with children and land and flocks. He's rich. He doesn't love you, God. Job just loves your stuff. He doesn't love you. He loves what you gave him. The truth is, it's Satan that wants God's stuff. It's Satan that wants God's power and God's glory. Satan wants worshipers to abandon God. And in response, God wants to put his glory on display for every power and principality to see. And so Satan devises a test of Job's love. He says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. This is the third building block of our theology of suffering. It says, although God is sovereign over suffering, suffering itself is Satan's plan. Or we could say it this way, Satan is the agent of suffering. You notice in the story here, this this is Satan's idea that Job will suffer. It's Satan's idea that this will be the test. And the writer of Job is very careful to keep the responsibility of God and the actions of Satan closely tied together. Here we see that God gives permission and Satan goes out to Job And we sort of understand that it's Satan that causes all the calamities, the attacks on Job's family and the disasters that happen. But then in chapter 2, verse 3, God says himself, He, Job, still holds fast to his integrity even though you incited me to destroy him without reason. Well, wait a minute. I thought Satan was doing the destroying. Now in chapter 2, God says he was incited to destroy him. Did Satan destroy Job or did God destroy Job? Sounds like God is kind of owning his role in the suffering that comes on Job. But then in chapter 2, just a few verses farther down, when God permits Satan to touch Job's health, we read, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. And so in that case, Satan did the striking. 
In both cases, God is in control of the actions where evil is present, but Satan is the agent of the evil taking place. You see how we get into deep waters here? That God is not going to stand for any pat answers. It's not just simple, you know, one plus one equals two is the answer to suffering. A Christian theology of suffering has to take into account what we're told here. God is in control. God initiates suffering. Satan is the agent of that suffering. And I think Satan chooses suffering because Satan is unable to understand the love of God and those that love God. Satan can't believe that God is Job's greatest treasure. Satan thinks if you take away all of Job's treasure, he's going to curse you, God, because he doesn't understand that Job's worship of God is such that it's God that is Job's greatest treasure. All other treasures are nothing compared to God. But Satan can't understand that. He doesn't comprehend how the worshipers of God love him. To Satan, it's natural that Job will curse God as soon as God stops blessing him, but that's not what we see. God is only allowing in Job's life what is necessary to defeat Satan. Satan's test is actually going to blow up in his face. Ultimately, as we see, Satan's choice of using suffering as the test is going to be the ultimate means of his destruction. And so the building blocks of our understanding so far, God is in control, God initiates our suffering according to his purpose. Satan is the agent of suffering. And now we have to look at Job. And through Job, add a couple more blocks to our building blocks of suffering. Let's go back to the first verse where we're introduced to Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. And the text here is clear. Job was blameless. He was innocent. Now, I don't want you to get bent around the idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and nobody is born innocent and nobody is perfectly righteous. We get that. Everybody does fall short of the glory of God. But the point here is that Job was legally justified. He was acting in accordance with the present revelation of God. God himself confirms with his own mouth in verse 8 that Job is blameless and upright. Verse 22 says that Job did not sin or charge God. Then in 2.10, it says that Job did not sin with his lips. Job is innocent. And this is an important building block for our theology of suffering. The fourth building block is that the righteous suffer. The righteous suffer. Suffering is not reserved as punishment or retribution for sinners. It's not reserved only as a natural consequence of bad choices. In our construction of a theology of suffering, we have to face this foundation stone, the fact that the righteous suffer. And this is what Job's friends don't understand. This is what Job doesn't even fully understand. This is what Job's wife doesn't understand. A Christian understanding of suffering will not allow for pat answers. And we hear those pat answers too often. We hear people say, oh, you're sick or this has happened because you've sinned. You know, God has a law. Haven't you heard of the law of sowing and reaping? And whatever you sow, you will end up reaping. And you reap what you sow. If you sow disobedience, you will reap suffering. Hmm? Partly true. Partly true. Not always true. God's not going to be bound up in that way, even when people try to turn him into an easy-to-understand religion. You remember the man born blind in John chapter 9, and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Someone must have sinned because the boy is blind. 
Evil has befallen him, but Jesus' answer to his disciples is neither. The reason for this man's suffering has nothing to do with him or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, says in John 9.3. Jesus basically says to the disciples, you don't know why he's suffering. Don't even try to guess. You don't understand. You see, another thing to remember here about Job is he doesn't know what's going on between God and Satan. And he's never told. Right? Chapters 1 and 2 are here for us. Right? This is a prophetic utterance. This is a, a prophetic book for us to understand what is going on. But Job never learns what's going on between Satan and God. Even at the end, when God finally speaks in the final chapters, he never says, you know, Job, you didn't realize this. But let me tell you what was going on all the time, right? You, you didn't know that this was happening, but let me explain to you what was going on so that you understand. God never tells Job about this whole thing between him and Satan. God at the end simply praises Job for his safe faith and then rebukes Job for questioning his justice and then reminds him again that he still doesn't know anything. Right? That's, that's God's answer, Right? We have to get into our understanding of suffering is we don't have pat answers. We don't have God figured out. We can't look at somebody born blind and think, oh, he or his parents must have sinned. We can't look at consequences in somebody's life and say, well, you are reaping what you sowed. Well, maybe or maybe not. Is Job reaping what he sowed? No, not at all. God will not be confined We'll see more of this later in the series, but the religious want to try to control God with a set of rules, with pat answers, to have them figured out. You're suffering, then you sinned. You act rightly, then God has to bless you. Oh, when you put it that way, what does that start to sound like? Well, if you sin, God punishes you. If you act rightly, God has to bless you. That starts to sound like the prosperity gospel, maybe? Starts to sound like maybe we can control God? Like, if we behave properly, then God owes us blessing? God is not going to be constrained. In theological terms, it's the law of retribution, and it's the trap that Satan and Job's friends and Job's wife and even Job himself is caught in. They can't understand that God acts out of grace, not out of retribution. God isn't confined. He can act graciously and mercifully, not out of being compelled by retribution. In other words, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? Your wicked neighbor gets rain on his lawn just like you do. And the just sometimes suffer. And the unjust sometimes, thank God, are justified, even though they're unjust. Now, Job knows he's righteous. It forms the central pillar of his argument for 30-some chapters. And remember to understand Job, we realize that Job has a good argument presented poorly and his friends have a bad argument presented well. Job is actually mostly right. He is righteous. He is innocent. He's not suffering because he sinned. And that leads right into our next building block. Job knows in his heart that his ultimate comfort is in God and that God is his greatest treasure. So our final building block is that our comfort and refuge is God. So we can glance through verses 12 to 20 in chapter 1 and 7 to 8 in chapter 2 and see that Job has suffered every kind of loss. In verses 2 to 5, we see a description of all that he had. He had 7,000 sheep, he had 3,000 camels, he had 500 yoke of oxen, seven sons, three daughters, and they all had homes. And they feasted, and Job sacrificed after each feast just to make sure there was no uncovered sin. 
although there's no hint of that. The picture that we're given of Job, it's a life of wealth and goodness and blessing. And then the news comes in one fell swoop, as they say, Job loses all his flocks, he loses all his servants, he loses all of his prosperity, all of his property, and finally loses all of his children. Men did it, Chaldeans did it, Sabians did it, nature did it, Satan did it, God did it. But it's all gone. His savings, his investment, his business, his family, it's wiped out. Some of you know what that's like. To arrive at a point in your life suddenly and you don't know why, but it's all gone. You lost it. God took it. And most especially heartbreaking to lose 10 children. And I don't know what that's like. I can't stand up here and imagine what it's like for Job to lose all of his children in one day. But people have experienced that. Some of you maybe have experienced that. Where it's just gone in the blink of an eye. Christian suffering isn't softened for us. The Bible doesn't turn away from hard realities of life. These are the questions that Job wants answered. These are the questions that we want answered. Why do the righteous suffer like this real pain? To lose everything, a marriage, children. This is what Job is suffering. But then we understand that his understanding of suffering is mostly right. We'll see where he goes with it in a sermon or two, but he gets to it right here. Look what he says. He says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. You see, God was still his greatest treasure. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. See, Job understands that he's only really borrowing God's stuff. He doesn't have anything when he came into the world. He won't have anything when he leaves. Everything he has is just borrowed from God. All his flocks, all his property, even his family is not actually his. Job understands that they are really God. Job doesn't love God because of God's stuff. He admits that all of that stuff isn't his. Job treasure is God himself. When he is sitting in the ash heap, scraping his sores with a shard of pottery, his wife can't believe it. Curse God and die already, she says. She's expecting God to act by retribution. Like, I don't know what you've done, Job, but you've done enough that God is really punishing you. So just curse him to his face and the lightning bolt will come because that's how God works, by retribution. She's expecting it. But Job says, You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, I worshipped God when things were good. Are we going to stop worshipping because things are bad? Do we only worship God when He blesses us? And our last building block for today is found in all of these responses from Job. Our comfort and our refuge in suffering is found in God. Job doesn't care about the secondary sources of his suffering. He goes straight to God for refuge, and this is true of us too. Our hope in suffering is found in these very building blocks of our theology of suffering. Suffering must relate to God in the way that Job describes it, or else there's no hope for us at all. And this is what I mean. This is what I'll close on. Let's look at this suffering in the ultimate suffering. Let's see it through the lens of the gospel. Job is the earliest book ever written in the Bible. It's also the earliest description of the gospel that is to come. Let's look at our building blocks. The first, the righteous suffer. 
The righteous must suffer. Job, in his own way, righteous, but there is a true righteous sufferer that is still to come. An ultimately righteous sufferer. If in our theology of suffering the righteous don't suffer, then Jesus couldn't suffer for us. If God can't choose some righteous to suffer, then we have no Savior. And so this building block of our understanding of suffering is important. The righteous must be able to suffer or we have no Savior. If God actually rules by retribution rather than by grace, then suffering always must follow after sin and blessing is only based on works, then we would never warrant a final, eternal, and infinite blessing because none of us are righteous. And so we are thankful that the righteous suffer and that the righteous, capital R, suffered to be our Savior. Let's look at another building block. God is in control of suffering. God put Jesus on the cross, not Satan. If in our theology of suffering we don't understand that God is in control, then we have to concede that it was Satan who won that battle. It was Satan that put Jesus on the cross and that the cross accomplished Satan's purposes, not God's. But what do we know about suffering? God is in control. God put Jesus on the cross for his purposes. Satan is only an agent of suffering. Satan, thinking that he was accomplishing something for his kingdom, actually defeated himself at the cross. God initiates suffering for his purpose and will. And so that means when Jesus suffered, it was for God's purpose, not Satan's purpose. Satan actually was defeated. And then when we suffer, we realize it's accomplishing God's purpose, not Satan's when we suffer. And finally, our comfort and refuge is in God. Our comfort now and ultimately forever is in God. He's in control. Satan is on his leash. Our suffering accomplishes God's purpose. And God is sovereign over all suffering. If we lose grasp of these building blocks, then we lose all hope and comfort in suffering. Because if God isn't in control, if he doesn't have Satan on a leash, if he isn't accomplishing his purposes, if the righteous don't suffer then that just means our suffering is punishment and randomness and despair. So these building blocks for Christian suffering are absolutely essential. If we give up the notion that God's in control and sovereign or that Satan is only an agent or that he's on a leash or that God is not initiating suffering for his purposes, then there's nothing in our suffering for us to hope for. But if these building blocks are true, then even in our suffering, as Job did, we hope in God. So the final question is, is our response to suffering the same as Job's? Will we fall down and worship God? Will we say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord? If I suffer as Job suffers, I don't know if I can answer that for sure. What I can answer is that I want my answer to suffering to be Job's. I want to respond the way Job does. I want to worship even in my suffering as well as in blessing. And so if I want that, then I'm going to have to do the work of digging into this theology of suffering that the book of Job gives us. I'm going to have to let this word transform me for six weeks so that I understand biblical Christian suffering. Not with pat, easy answers but with what God has revealed about himself and us. I hope you come along with me on that. Let's pray. Father God, this is a 
These are deep waters, deep waters that we're trying to swim over very quickly. (laughs) And so, Lord, I just pray that as we look into your message to us about what you're accomplishing in suffering, that we can build these foundational blocks that we can establish our life on so that when the Chaldeans come and when the Sabians come and when the fire comes and when the wind comes and when disaster strikes, our response is like Job's. Heartbroken, grieving, but finding comfort and refuge, putting his hope in you, the sovereign God who's in control even of suffering. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.